Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today on the show, we have an excerpt from a new fantastic Commune course that I'm so excited about. It's titled, A Path to Healing People and Planet. And it features an array of lessons and conversations with regenerative farmers, community organizers, amazing business leaders, and advocates for indigenous practices. This program is a collaborative effort between Commune, Dr. Zach Bush, and Farmer's Footprint. Now, many of you may know Zach from my many previous conversations with him here on the podcast and from courses on Commune. He is a physician and thought leader on the microbiome as it relates to the health of both humans and our food system. He is also the founder of Farmer's Footprint, which supports farmers across the nation who are transitioning from chemically farmed acreage to regenerative agriculture. In this episode, which serves as a quasi-introduction to the course, Zach shares the story of why his patients were getting sicker and more inflamed even while eating kale and Brussels sprouts and other foods that he knew that should be loaded with medicinal compounds. Now, this journey would lead him to realize that we have created a food system, a medical system, and a culture that is fundamentally divorced from nature, and particularly from healthy, fertile soil. Now, if you like what you hear, I encourage you to sign up for the free watch party of A Path to Healing People and Planet. Just go to onecommune.com slash healing path. That's onecommune.com slash healing path. Enter your email address. And from November 17th through 20, we will unlock the entire course for free. You will be joining thousands, hopefully hundreds of thousands of people from around the world as we learn how to reconnect with our food system and support regenerative practices. You can also find that sign-up link in the show notes. Okay, to kick off the journey, here's Dr. Zach Bush. Hello, Zach. Great to be with you. It's so good to be with you, Jeff. (laughs) I'm really thrilled to be in community with you and looking forward to this discussion. Yeah, me too. It's been uh, just such an honor uh, to work with you and with Farmer's Footprint around this pivotal issue related to soil. Um, and so as a, as a means to begin, I was wondering if you could scaffold our conversation in some biography mm-hmm. and how you have come to be so interested uh, in matters related to soil. Yeah, it was a nonlinear journey. Obviously, I was uh, my background as a medical doctor certainly began in a much different place. It seemed I, I began actually birthing babies in the Philippines was my big pivot point from engineering to medicine. Uh, went with uh, aunt and uncle that were doing missionary work over there. Lived with them for six months, and in that experience, got riveted by the miracle of life and got to see the resiliency of life happening uh, at the ground level of the poverty in, in the Philippines expressing itself in a, in a certain environment, socioeconomic stressors were obvious and all this, but I got to see firsthand the resilience of human biology coming out of impoverished, you know, often near starvation levels of uh, kind of food systems. I, I still was watching children be so resilient and full of joy and full of community. And uh, so it was shocking coming back to the United States after that experience and starting into pre-med and ultimately finding myself in these huge, you know, institutions that we call hospitals, so separated from nature, so isolated from uh, human experience. Instead of seeing families gathered around a woman who's birthing or an individual who was sick, we were seeing technology surround human beings. And it was kind of in that journey over the next you know 15 20 years as i dove deep into medical education and ultimately biomedical research uh, that i was really the frog in boiling water in a lot of ways i didn't realize how far i was separating myself from the very things that inspired me to go down this path in my life in the first place until about 2008 2010 in that time frame I was at the University of Virginia. I was on faculty. I'd finished 17 years in academia. I was just like thought, and yet I was at the very beginning of a 40-year journey into 
professorship and all these you know academic constructs and i was feeling myself very hopeless and in that hopelessness i uh, started to do a bit of a root cause analysis of how i'd gotten to where i was and uh, one of the big pivot points was one of my patients that was uh, one of the first to be enrolled in my clinical trial that i had developed for uh, my chemotherapy that i had brought from basic science to kind of clinical uh, experimentation and she asked me a very simple question when she was trying to decide whether she was going to swallow these these six green capsules that I had, had handed her and she said you know how how is this related to the to the cause of my cancer how is this related to the reason I have cancer and I had absolutely no answer for that that didn't stop me from making something up that sounded like an answer but I had that fundamentally planted a seed in me that that really revealed to me that I was in an industry that had so gone down the path of disease management that it had forgotten how the diseases occurred. And so in that, I started to study uh, nutrition as a foundation for health and wellness. And uh, health and wellness was something I had no idea about because you have one little course at the beginning of medical school, one semester called physiology. And at that point, that's the last thing you learn about how a healthy cell works. And in the next 17 years is, is how diseases work. And so for that, I, I found my way back in this world of nutrition, left the university in 2010, and started uh, working on food as our medicine again, much as Hippocrates had said. And in that journey, realized the food wasn't working well anymore and was watching people actually get sicker, more inflammation, more dysfunction at the biologic level by eating things like kale and Brussels sprouts and things that we knew were, should be loaded with medicine, anti-inflammatories, anti-cancer compounds and the like. And I was watching my patients get more bloated clinically and, and feel worse, more brain fog, more sense of fatigue, more inflammation on the healthiest foods I could find. And that started me down a slippery slope into uh, soil itself. And it was one of my colleagues bringing in a soil paper where we started to, to realize that uh, we had really lost the forest for trees in not just Western medicine, but in humanity. And we had created not just a medical system, but a food system that was fundamentally divorced from from a living life soil. And what I mean by that is a soil system that uh, actually has a vital ecosystem within it. We had in our labeling of food and the like, boil it down to a nutrition panel that reports sodium and potassium and a few nutrients, but tells you nothing as to whether there's any bacteria or fungi in that soil. It tells you nothing if there's any life force passing from the, from the soil up into the plant, from the plant to the consumer. And so for this reductionist approach of medicine, for the reductionist approach of the food system, we find ourselves in the midst of this chronic disease epidemic. And for that, we set our, set our sights on creating the farmer's footprint uh, to start to bring awareness of what a future food system that would sustain life of humans and planet might look like. So that's fascinating that you are watching patients uh, consuming what should be uh, nutrient-rich foods but they weren't getting any healthier. And that lead, led you to uh, determining that these foods that were once rich in different kinds of nutrients were now depleted. So if we continue with our root cause analysis, where did that then lead you to, uh, in relation to soil and the depletion of soil? Yeah, I was fortunate in that my training was uh, in endocrinology and metabolism, which is a study of how hormones regulate and coordinate the behavior of the many organ systems in your body to one purpose, this one life that you live, 70 trillion cells, you know, dozens of different organs and glands and everything else coordinating all this different uh, life within you. And the second half of that uh, in the form of metabolism in that specialty was studying mitochondria, which are the little bacteria that live inside of our cells. And my cancer research and the chemotherapy I developed was very targeted at, around these mitochondrial uh, uh, life forms that live within us. And I was studying the ways in which those, those mitochondria can, can turn on pathways to, to eliminate cancer without any poisoning by chemotherapy and the rest. And so... I had really developed a deep sense of reverence for these little microbes living within us. And as I started studying nutrition, I realized that we had failed to understand the relationship of the microbes within the soil systems as deeply as we had come to understand the microbes that we call mitochondria within us. And so uh, the deeper I dug in nutrition, the more I realized we were 
basically kind of in a 1950s or maybe even 1930s understanding of, of the microbiome's role in, in nutrition as we had been with mitochondria to human cells in the 1930s. And so we're 100 years behind on understanding you know, the importance of bacteria in the soils compared to where we are at understanding mitochondria in human cells. And so that was a little bit of my background that prepared me for this deep dive into where did we go wrong? Where did we lose the life force within our soil systems? And the food that you mentioned depleted uh, was starting to demonstrate not just a loss of life, but a loss of the ability of that life form to pass the information up to a plant. And that turns out to be a really beautiful dance of biology uh, that allows for a nutrient to be created in the soil in the first place by the microbes of the bacteria, fungi, protozoa, this rich ecosystem that lives there. But then for them to actually passage that into a root system of a plant actually takes the generation of a completely new life form that is called mycorrhizae that sits between the microbiome, the fungi, and the root itself. And the mycorrhizae isn't a, a, a biologic species. It has no DNA. It has no way of creating itself. It seems to be a co-creation of microbes, the fungi specifically in their mycelial bed, and the plant rootlet itself. And if you've ever dug in a, in a uh, garden, you've seen these mycorrhizae. They look a little bit like spider, spider webs. They're kind of white little uh, freeform things moving in the soil there. And so these mycorrhizae are responsible for passaging nutrition from one species to the next. And maybe a better way of looking at it is one environment of cooperation to a different environment of cooperation. The microbes are single-celled systems, and they have to pass that into a multicellular system of a plant. And that requires this shift from bacteria to mitochondria, or in the case of a, a plant, we call them plastids, but they're basically mitochondria that live inside the, the plant cells. And so this journey from single-celled microbes in the soil to microbes within the plant to microbes in the, the human was starting to give us deep insights into the, our relationship to planet Earth. And it started to really redefine our concept of self because we suddenly realized with this advent of the science of the microbiome, we can no longer de define human or human life as a single species experience. It is intrinsically at its very foundational core of a single cell all the way to the whole individual reliant upon, in fact, maybe created from this rich ecosystem beneath our feet and soil systems and the deep soil system within our own small intestine, colon, and now we understand that microbiome to expand throughout the whole body. The brain has a microbiome. The prostate has a microbiome. The breast has a microbiome. So whatever body part you pick, we now understand it to really be this thriving organic ecosystem of microbes and life participating in this greater thing that we call vitality. So for that, we really saw the opportunity to start to understand how consumerism and the medical system perhaps as well had come to engineer a chemical planet. How did we become so reliant at the farming level on chemical inputs, just as I as a physician had been so reliant on chemical inputs to my patients that we would call medications or drugs uh, in my management. And so it was very exciting in 2016, 17, we set out to start to demonstrate to the world that there was a, a, a perfect correlation and in fact a causation at the biochemical and biocellular level of chemical agriculture and the chronic disease epidemics, most of all perhaps our cancer movement uh, that we had seen over the last few decades. And in setting that, that uh, mission forward, we set out to build a documentary film on uh, the food system and specifically our use of antibiotics in that food system in the form of herbicides and pesticides. And for that, we found glyphosate as kind of the smoking gun. And glyphosate is the primary ingredient in Roundup, which is the famous weed killer that's probably on everybody's garage shelf, but is the primary herbicide used globally in our entire global agricultural system. We're now spraying 2 billion kilograms of this compound into our soil water systems worldwide. And so for that discovery of glyphosate, we started to understand the importance of moving ourselves back towards a non-chemical management of uh, the soil systems and beyond. Because not only was the glyphosate acting as an antibiotic that would ultimately deplete the, the food that you had mentioned, it was also starting to become a residue, a chemical residue within the food, and therefore a toxin that was damaging our, our biology. So it's a one-two punch on glyphosate, kills the microbiome and acts as a, a direct cellular toxin. 
Yeah, can you pull on that thread just a, a little further in terms of the role that glyphosate plays as a chelator in the soil that blocks the plant from uh, absorbing certain minerals and then blocks certain key cellular pathways within the plant that are essential to human health. Yeah, you're spot on. The word chelation means basically to grab. So uh, this chemical acts a, a bit like a, a basket that scoops or connects itself uh, to critical nutrients within the soil system. And these can be common nutrients that you've heard of, uh, things like selenium, manganese, things like this, but they can also be you know, much more trace nutrients that may be critical uh, down at, at much smaller levels, zinc and copper being examples of tiny trace elements, but also even in, into things such as arsenic that sound poisonous and plutonium and these things way low down on the periodic chart. This, this chemical is grabbing and disrupting the, the way in which the elements of the periodic chart interact with biology or become bioavailable to life itself through the metabolism or the eating and digestion that bacteria and fungi would do to those nutrients. So grabbing away the nutrients and then acting as antibiotic to those that would make that bioavailable. And then finally, as you say, as the chemical enters our body, uh, it, it does direct damage to cellular systems at the protein level. And those proteins are coded ultimately by DNA. And the connection between DNA and protein is amino acids. And there's only 22 amino acids that build the incredible array of 400,000 different proteins, which include enzymes and structural proteins and everything else that allow us to have a human body. And those 22 amino acid building blocks, kind of like the alphabet of our language, uh, has some very critical uh, elements that we call the essential amino acids. And much like the vowels within the English alphabet, if you eliminate the Z, no problem. You misspell Zach and zucchini, but you're otherwise pretty good. Uh, but if you eliminate a vowel, you start to misspell words all over the place. And that's a lot of how the amino acids are. If you start to eliminate essential amino acids, which are made by bacteria, fungi, and plants, but not by humans, then we start to misspell proteins all over the place. And so we can't make these critical vowel-like essential amino acids. And so as we start to build a food system that uh, is using a toxin, glyphosate, that blocks the enzyme pathway, it's called the shikimate pathway, that allows for these essential amino acids to occur, we end up with a, a dysfunctional alphabet or a depleted alphabet in building protein structures. And so imagine in a womb, an infant forming has to build a 70 trillion system, trillion celled system that's built of all these proteins and the rest, and it's missing the right alphabet. And so it starts misspelling enzymes and misspelling scaffolding proteins and structural proteins and boundary proteins. And what you end up with is, is a system that is not communicating well within itself and is a failure of boundaries or barriers through the system. And therefore you get chronic leak and chronic inflammation and the child is born into a lifespan that's going to be you know, far short of its, its full potential of longevity, and unfortunately really burdened with a chronic disease, you know, journey that has really never been seen before. We've invented so many new diseases in the last few decades. Yeah, and I know that you talk so eloquently about the efflorescence of certain kinds of chronic diseases and also mental illness. So we look at like chronic depression, for example, and we know that the absence of an essential amino acid like tryptophan, for example, is the antecedent to serotonin for, uh, in the body. And if you're not producing serotonin well, you know, that is a mood regulator. So you start to untangle uh, some of these uh, pieces and you start to connect the dots a little bit of like, well, why do we have chronic rate or uh, skyrocketing rates of, of depression? Well, are we not create, are we, uh, robbing ourselves of the essential ingredients that we need to make the right neurotransmitters. Or I know that, you know, for example, just around uh, our reproduction, reproductive mm -hmm. systems, our, our inability to make certain steroid hormones that rely on some of these building block amino acids um, like phenylalanine and tyrosine and, and tryptophan. So I know you've talked about that at, at length. Yeah. Yeah, and interestingly, as we started the journey down the, the whole tributary of the Mississippi River system to make this film, 
at that time we didn't know we were going to need to start a nonprofit, but we we were setting out to film this this documentary on the use of herbicides, pesticides, and the the occurrence of disease and particularly cancer throughout. Because at the end of the Mississippi River, the last ninety miles is Cancer Alley. It's the highest rates of cancer in the entire developed world, and so uh, that last ninety miles between Baton Rouge and and Louisiana, uh, Baton Rouge and New Orleans and Louisiana, that that whole region now is is really strife, not just with chronic disease, but with chronic economic collapse and stress. And so going to a single farm, you actually get to witness what you were just describing of the breakdown of nutrients to neurotransmitters to the advent of depression and, and the collapse of neuro function. Uh, the farmers within our conventional chemical agricultural environment are exposed to the very highest levels of these chemicals. Um, they have to suit up in hazmat suits and the kids are often not allowed out all summer long because the planes are flying and spraying or the trucks are out spraying or the laborers are even got backpacks of, of these chemicals out spraying manually. And so in these hazmat suits, they're trying their best to protect themselves with the immediate application, but then they go back in the barn, take off their hazmat suits and for the next you know, couple of days, they're breathing massive quantities of these chemicals. And so... You go to a farm today, uh, practicing conventional chemical agriculture, and you can sit around a dinner table with these farmers and the family and see the manifestation of disease right in front of you. Uh, farmers have the highest rates of suicide of any profession in our country. Interestingly, doctors are right behind them. And so the two industries that have been trained to practice the most chemically motivated technologies on the planet suffer the highest rates of depression because we are constantly exposed to antibiotics, both as farmers and physicians. In the hospital settings, we're, we're steeped in antibiotics ourselves. We, we're literally breathing the most you know, depleted biodiversity on the planet in an ICU, for example. You're down to like three or four dominant species instead of 10,000 or 40,000 dominant species when you walk through a rainforest. And so you boil it down to just these few species that are so drug resistant. They're, they've mutated so many times to find survival in the midst of our bleaches and our antimicrobes and our alcohol sanitizers and everything we just you know dump into these hospital systems and so in our eagerness to sterilize a human being for health or our eagerness to sterilize the field so we could grow a monocrop we destroyed the possibility of life to occur and so this has really been our journey as a farmers footprint organization is first initially seeing the connection between human health collapse and soil health collapse but as we went on the journey with farmers, we realized this is much, much deeper than go buy organic at the grocery store. And uh, organic agriculture came out of an understanding that maybe chemicals in our food are not good, but it wasn't based on the understanding of a living soil system. Biodynamics and permaculture and some of these other, you know, long practiced uh, sciences of agriculture over the last few hundred years were really coming out of thousands of years of indigenous practices and crop rotation, cover cropping, you know, uh, inner, inner crop seeding, like all these composting, obviously. So all of these technologies of the past had really been kind of perfected in biodynamics and, and uh, permaculture as, as a couple of recent sciences. But when organic came along, it became uh, an anti-phenomenon, right? It's, organic is anti-chemical. And so it was a long list of 30 things that you cannot do, that you should not do if you're gonna be organic. But at no point does it mention the word soil, nutrition, nutrients, like the whole organic certification is devoid of anything of a, what would be a relevant outcome to the consumer. And so by being anti-chemical, by being anti-input, you don't become pro anything. And that's a big lesson to us as humanity perhaps, but certainly as activists and as solutionists. If we're gonna find that solution of the future, we're gonna to have to become pro living systems and stop being so reductionist about the problem or the solution and start to understand that life is the result of cooperative biodiverse living systems. And if we try to continue to define the nutrition panel on your food as sodium, potassium, and few other elements, we're gonna miss the whole point. And the consumer's not gonna be able to make the informed decisions on how to feed their children, how to bring health out of their family. How is glyphosate applied? And can you describe a little bit of how the advent of genetically modified seeds impacted the application of glyphosate? Very good. 
the glyphosate molecule was originally patented in 1974 as a weed killer, and then it was repatented multiple times over the last few decades as antibiotic, antifungal, all kinds of things. Uh, but its advent as a weed killer uh, allowed it to be used very sparingly because if you sprayed a, a corn stalk with this, it killed it. It's, it's what's called a non-selective herbicide. It kills green things. <laughs> it turns out that when you kill all green things it touches, you also kill other things that aren't green, like the soil system itself and the microbes. But when you're just having to spot spray the weeds, you end up with relatively small amounts of residues in, in the farm soils and more importantly, perhaps in the water runoff. Glyphosate is a water-soluble toxin that travels through our water table. And so as soon as the crop is irrigated tomorrow morning or it rains tomorrow morning, uh, that, that water picks up the glyphosate and carries it into the nearest freshwater river and ultimately into the, the ocean systems. And in the transit, of course, there's a lot of transpiration. It, it evaporates and ends up in the air we breathe, the clouds and the rain that come down. And so as you're starting to look at that spot spraying of glyphosate, some harm done at every level of that whole water system and soil system associated with it. But it really got out of hand in, in the early 1990s. And that's when we transitioned from a glyphosate as a weed killer to repatented as glyphosate as a desiccant, which means drying agent. So there's many crops that we eat that need to be dried before it's harvested. And examples of these are, are wheat and legumes, things like your chickpeas and and soybeans and the like. If they're harvested too early and they're not dry fully, then they mold and they can't get to market. And so uh, this leads to a bit of a, a catch-22 for farmers if, if there's some weather variability towards the end of the growing season. If it's too wet in the growing season, at, at the end of the growing season as you move towards harvest and the crop is not drying fast enough, you may lose the entire crop. And so it was very, exciting for farmers when they were told, hey, look, you can spray all of your wheat field days before harvest and it will be dry as a crisp. It will be completely dead and dry. And so in the use of glyphosate as a desiccant, you end up with a much broader application of this, this chemical. You're suddenly spraying the entire crop rather than spot spraying the weeds. And so in 1991-92, we saw a huge increase in the amount of residual in the water system, soil systems, rain, etc but also in the food itself, because you just sprayed that a few days before harvest and the water within the food will pick that up as well. And so all of our food, regardless of how dry it is when picked, is primarily water. Most fruits and vegetables, you're looking at about 70% water, right? And so uh, glyphosate is picked up by the corn as it grows, it's picked up by the wheat as it grows, and then you, you spray it all with glyphosate right at the end, it's taken up one more time and you deliver this high dose and by 1993, two years later, we're starting to define a whole new disease called gluten sensitivity and celiac disease became this phenomenon through the 1990s. And so as soon as we started spraying this as a drying agent to crops, the, the residual chemical residues jumped through the roof. And our laboratory has been studying for the last 10 years how that happened. So that there's been a lot of correlation to that over time. But we've been able to show the causation, which is that when glyphosate shows up in high concentrations, it destroys the tight junctions, which is the Velcro between our cells that would allow something like an intestinal lining to be a coherent barrier. It breaks the tight junctions and suddenly there's permeability or leak across that membrane. And with that leak comes the overwhelm to the immune system that sits right below, deep below your gut lining. 70% of the immune system sits in the one millimeter deep to your intestinal lining. Over 80% of the antibodies you make are produced in that space. And so you start opening up the, the channels there with glyphosate and suddenly the whole world becomes an insult to the immune system. So you start to react to everything. So we see not only the advent of dietary allergy to wheat or gluten, you also see you know, allergies now exploding to everything you've eaten in the last 30, 90 days. If you do a food sensitivity test, I guarantee you in the top five are gonna be your three favorite foods because they're simply being introduced to your immune system the most often. And so now if you go in a nurse's office at a, a, an elementary school, you'll see a whole wall of EpiPens and in my school, there was one kid who had a peanut allergy and we all knew who that kid was and we all let him eat outside or whatever because you were worried he was gonna die from peanut, breathing peanuts. He was super sensitive, we knew it. Now you've got kids with EpiPens for avocados, strawberries, you know, things that we could have never imagined being anaphylactically allergic to in, in the 1970s. And so this advent of glyphosate has led to this, you know, era where we cannot even tolerate the things that we eat or breathe for the amount of leak we have.
1996 rolls around to your question and we get the genetically modified seed. And so uh, GMO corn, soybean, 1996. We actually did squash before. It didn't get a huge foothold really quickly, but squash, 1994, I think it was, and then 96 corn, soybean. Now we have over 30 crops that are grown globally that are genetically modified to be Roundup ready, which means glyphosate tolerant. And so we add this gene that was found in a, in a microbe in a bacteria that's now being spliced into uh, these seeds such that we can spray the crop throughout its life cycle and it doesn't die. And so this was a huge boon for farmers in that you no longer had to worry about weeds at any point in your growing season. You could simply spray a few times during the course of the year and knock down your cover crop if you've got it, knock down any weeds that are there before you plant. And then you can a couple times during the growing season spray, make sure your soil is completely sterile, but for your monocrop of corn or soybean. And the, and the mentality was, well, that's really good because if you have anything else growing other than your corn, they're competing for nutrients in the soil. We had this scarcity model of, of soil. We thought, well, nutrients will disappear. When in fact, of course, it's now understood it's only for biodiversity that we get an abundance of nutrients in the first place. We have to move from scarcity to abundance as we start to reimagine the food system, agricultural as a whole. But nonetheless, by 1996, we were not only spraying all of our wheat and, and legumes as desiccants, we were now spraying all crops that were genetically modified, which include things like sugar beets and, and things like this that dominate the entire agricultural system globally. Sugar cane, sugar beets are the biggest crop grown worldwide. And so as we genetically modify and, you know, crops that are accounting for 70, 80% of the, all the agriculture done on the planet, we start to get to these massive amounts of chemical exposure throughout all systems of, of soil and water. In the United States today, 75 to 85% of the air and rain that, that we are exposed to is carrying glyphosate. And so we have thoroughly saturated you know, our entire environment with this chemical, as mentioned, 2 billion kilograms a year. It really is the number one chemical used worldwide. And for that, I think it's really uh, you know, ground zero or public enemy number one as far as a single compound. But it's really indicative of a much different injury or a deeper I think injury, as we keep doing the root cause analysis, this is the belief that we need to kill things. You know, and so giving farmers a weed killer, giving them a, a, a desiccant, giving them all these things is like, you gotta kill your crop faster, you gotta kill your, your weeds quicker. And we develop all these, you know, slippery slope to, to this mentality. And I would say that farmers and physicians are in the same basket. I was trained for two decades to kill everything, kill cancer cells, kill bacteria, kill fungi, kill yeast, kill, kill any tick-borne, you know, uh, virus, you know, kill viruses, kill things, kill everything. And that was my mentality. And I, and then you step back and you wonder why nobody's living well under your care. And it's like, well, probably because I was, I'm a killing machine. I'm not really a health machine. And unfortunately, our farmers are finding themselves in the same boat as they've been handed a toolbox of killing. And for that, there's very little vitality left in the soil systems of the planet. Yeah, it's interesting that we've applied this mechanistic Newtonian vision really to our agriculture, to our medicine that is highly reductionist in nature, where we try to uh, identify a particular problem and then go kill that problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the countervailing um, approach to both agriculture and medicine is regenerative. And it is a systems biology approach that is not reductionist, that looks at whole systems of all of the implications of particular applications. So I wonder if you could now delineate um, the differences in terms of uh, practices and also mentality from intensive con conventional agriculture and this emerging uh, efflorescence of regenerative agriculture. It's beautiful. Yeah, so if, if conventional chemical agriculture is about killing everything, then organic became uh, an anti-movement where we said, well, we're not gonna kill everything with chemicals. Instead, you can kill it with these natural compounds. And so we gave them biologic inputs instead of chemical inputs. And so they'd find extracts from uh, bacteria that would kill fungi or such like this. So they were natural compounds, but they had just swapped out the same mentality of we gotta kill everything. 
you definitely got to put a fungicide on your apples because you, know, you can go organic, but there's going to be fungus on them if you don't do this and you want that apple to be all shiny and perfect. And so here's some natural killing in, inputs that you can use. And, and similarly, you know, on the fertilizer side, we said, no, no chemical fertilizers. Instead, we can use these organic fertilizers and we can do these natural compounds that we're always adding every year. And so the farmer's now going out every year to buy natural fertilizer instead of chemical fertilizer, natural insecticides instead of chemical insecticides and, and the like. But at no point were they empowered to really create a living system. And that's where we move from organic to regenerative. And so regenerative agriculture is... Uh, I think fortunately actually uh, an ill-defined movement because there's a different avenue into this form of agriculture for every single farm because they all have different ecosystems. They have different uh, economic environments. It's not a thing. <laughs> it's a process. It's a process. Um, so while regenerative agriculture uh, may vary depending on a particular farm and its ecosystem and, and where it is, are there specific um, techniques that are part of uh, regenerative agriculture at large. For sure. And I think it, it kind of comes down to this simple definition that we provide, which is instead of biologic versus chemical inputs, we're now focusing on a living system. That is to say it is a system of relationships. And this is, again, speaking to something bigger than just soil. We could really learn a lot from in human society about what, how soil works. But uh, what we find out about a living system is it relies on biodiversity. And so biodiversity of microbes, the number of bacteria, protozoa, fungi, uh, nematodes, earthworms, you know, the more species you get at every level of that, that soil architecture and you know, landscape, the more rich and abundant everything becomes. Not just the nutrients, but also the life force capacity to make those nutrients bioavailable to the plants, such that they would be bioavailable to the soil within you, your gut microbiome that would then go and feed you. And so at every level, whether we're, we're down at the dirt or at the human, we're looking for biodiversity. And so methodologies of regenerative agriculture are always focused on maximizing the amount of biodiversity and active communication and cooperation between those species. It's not enough just to add species. This is important because in the probiotic mindset, it's like, oh, I'll just take billions of copies of these seven species and that'll be good for me. And we can do the same thing. Oh, just, just plant a cover crop and that's enough. It's not enough to do a species introduction. You need, need to learn how nature pairs species. The relationships are so critical because there's synergy between species that makes the life force happen. And so regenerative sciences and regenerative agriculture is a movement towards understanding in your ecosystem, how do bacteria play? How do bacteria play with fungi? How do they play with yeast? How do they play with the human cells that they might eventually feed? And so that, that journey into not just diversity for the sake of diversity, which is I think what we see in the corporate setting a lot, we need diversity for the sake of input, like perspective, relationship. We need biodiversity, relationship, we need community at the soil level and beyond. So regeneration is really about fundamentally changing the farmer's perspective about what can I kill to what can I foster, what biodiversity can I create today? And it's very exciting to see what's happening as farmers get a hold of this. We've got you know nerdy guys hanging out and women leading in the fields that are just doing extraordinarily brilliant pairing of species to find new synergies in nature to find out that this particularly flowering plant for your your plant pollinators like your bees and your moths and everything else not only is bringing the pollinators but it provides a critical nutrient to the row crop that you have next door to it and the like so there's there's this excitement for me around regeneration that it is truly a new science which is to say a new understanding of a very old technique of nature, which is biodiversity fosters life, life fo fosters adaptation, adaptation fosters more biodiversity. And for that, we see a more and more intelligent and vibrant system. And so it's a, a very exciting process as we move from not the infighting of, of organic versus conventional, which is saying, well, I kill with this, I kill with that. It's more, I foster life at every level through these mechanisms. How does that work for you over there? Oh, well, that doesn't work quite right for me here because my cover crop up in Canada can only grow to, to 14 inches and it's too small to, to manage with a roller crimper or other technologies that are, work really well down in the U.S. And so we have to have technologies that are adapted to environments just as much as we have to have mindset adapted to uh, different environments. And so 
regeneration is, I think, really exciting because not only is it a living system, it's a living science. It's always changing, it's always transforming, and it's encouraging us to look into how life can't go back to some previous 1974 status, but how life can leap forward to an expression we've simply never even seen on the planet in, in human history. Is the paradigm shift that we're looking for somewhat contingent on a cultural shift? And uh, I say that um, because we are so accustomed to seeing rank-on-rank -rank crops extending out into the horizon as our um, vision of what a farm should be. Mm -hmm. but, um, but a regenerative farm looks very, very different from that. And I, and I wonder, in your experience on the ground working with farmers, what kind of cultural shift do we need uh, to reify to get people to take that risk to transition from conventional to regenerative? It's a critical question because oftentimes I think we, we expect the farmer in their practices to create a regenerative future. And here we are as consumers saying, well, why can't I find a regenerative cucumber on the shelf? Well, the answer is because that cucumber getting to your shelf has almost nothing to do with the farmer. It, the practices in, of a living system at the farm level to create a regenerative farm is critical change in culture at the farm level. But we need a systems change in that culture across the entire food system and ultimately in our own socio-political, you know, social-cultural environment of, of Western civilization that would start to put value back in the food system at every level. Uh, because right now we we have most of our ingredients being grown, never ending up directly on a plate. It ends up in processed food through high fructose corn syrup or other you know weird avenues of processing. So we eat very little real food. So we can start by starting to value from the farm all the way to the consumer's plate the the importance of a living life form food from a living life form soil, and then start to build out the infrastructure necessary to get that reality built. And so the farmer can make the regenerative decision on the ground level, but then they're going to need storage, transportation, distribution, uh, retailers, consumer product goods producers that understand the importance of their value-added product and then create those supply chains back up towards the consumer. And so it's really going to take, just as it takes you know, biodiversity within the soil to create a regenerative story, we need biodiversity within the entire food system to occur. And unfortunately, we created a very centralized, monopoly-driven system of storage, transportation, distribution, and food processing. Whether we're talking about the processing of a chicken or a cow into a hamburger, or the processing of high fructose corn syrup and other th ingredients out of our foods, we have become so reductionist, therefore centralized, therefore monopolized, that it's very difficult for a farmer to compete in that economic environment on its own. And so we need to join with the farmer more directly as current consumers and become co-producers of a vital economy. And so that's going to take a real systems change and a reinvestment within our food system that would come to value food as, as it must be, the, not only the, the biologic center, but ultimately the sacred center of, of human life. It's important for us to remember that food is not there to make biology live long. Food is there for fellowship. It's what brings us together more than anything else. Food brings us together. You know, I would argue that religion ultimately kind of divides us on a global level. Food brings us together all of the time. When you travel, the thing you're looking forward to the most is the food in Italy or the food in France or the food in South Africa or wherever you're heading. It's that, that experience of a cuisine that is a, a, a reflection or an expression of a people who have lived in an environment to appreciate the biodiversity of flavors, scents, tastes, nutrients, food, you know, medicines within that food. And so I'm excited for us to reimagine not just regenerative agriculture, but a regenerative society. How do we all really plug into that cultural shift? Mm, that's beautiful. Because I'm not a farmer. And sure, I can, as a consumer, I can vote with my fork three times, well, two times a day for me, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, between 11 and 7. Um, <laughs> Um, but if you're passionate about joining uh, this movement to create a more regenerative society, but uh, you want to do more than just uh, consume regeneratively um, in your own lifestyle and diet, and you're not a farmer, 
what are the avenues in which you can participate uh, in a more regenerative world? You know, from a, a general concept, I think it's moving us from an abstract concept of organic or regenerative or biodynamic or whatever labels you want to put on to an engaged process. And so it is not an abstract concept of something somebody labeled or certified something as such. You've got to become engaged such that you know your farmer, that you know the food supply chain, that you know uh, that your you know, consumer process good, that you're a granola bar or whatever you're about to put in your body, you have held that company accountable to listing their ingredients correctly and to and also tracking value from their consumer product back to the farmer. How is the farmer participating in that in that economy of a, a consumer packaged good? And so we need to, as consumers, become producers again, and we need to produce a supply chain that is as responsible as the farmer is at the soil level. And so become engaged in the food system is the short answer to a regenerative future. And for that, this whole regenerative program that you at Commune uh, put together with your team, with Farmers Footprint, is giving us an avenue to give an example of how this is done. Not only teaching regeneration and all these concepts from the multiple angles that we'll share with everybody, but also even showing how nonprofits can become regenerative. Uh, instead of waiting for the scarce donation at the end of the year, how do they become generating value such that there's a, an income stream for nonprofits built out of this? So thank you to Commune for the opportunity for us to really participate in this, this delivery of a valuable product to a community that's starting to reflect their new sense of value of the food system as a whole. And we are pouring that money directly back into storytelling for the farmers and for building out the landscape and of you know, offerings that are gonna be necessary for this sea change to happen. So we've got things like Renourish Studio that's bringing together CEOs of CPG companies and consumer packaged goods and other stakeholders throughout the food industry to reimagine how they all become part of the, the re regenerative future. So Renourish Studios with Lauren will be featured in this, this content as well as things like Biome Capital, which is uh, also featured today where we have to reimagine private equity as partnership to farmers rather than exploitive of, of, of technologies or soil systems. We have to move from the abstract concept of carbon credits to real regenerative systems that would solve for the global warming climate crisis at large uh, uh, through that system. So Farmer's Footprint has become a regenerative environment of for-profit and non-profit offerings that allow for a demonstration, I think, of what happens when humans start to collaborate. So we didn't know what we were going to create. We didn't know we were going to create a nonprofit, let alone the whole ecosystem of things that have now evolved. And so when humans come together with a regenerative heart and mind, a whole new world opens up and a new reality starts to become possible. And, and you guys, by listening to this, and Jeff, you and your, your whole group at Commune and coming alongside of us over the last year, have really shown us something about the way in which community nurtures life within us, just as our regenerative food would. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's such a pleasure um, to work with you on this project and to reimagine, as you say, uh, what regeneration can be. Now, regeneration is often applied to agriculture, but I hear you use it more as an adjective than as a noun. And I guess that's what I would counsel anyone is that whatever you do, whatever your mission or your life's work is, put regenerative as an adjective in front of that and see what that feels like. Mm -hmm. Because we're, obviously there is regenerative agriculture, but there is also uh, regenerative politics. Imagine mm -hmm. that, yeah. what that might look like. Um, regenerative finance, regenerative medicine is a huge thing right now. So um, this I, I find to be really, really exciting. Uh, about reimagining a future that is regenerative and, and you're at the tip of the spear. So such an honor to be working with you and Farmer's Footprint on this project. Thank you so much for the love and support. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Zach Bush. As Zach mentions in this interview, regeneration happens through biodiversity at the level of microbes, plants, and animals, but also of thought, personal experience, and social engagement and action. There are so many simple things that you can do to be a part of the movement toward a regenerative food system. Start a garden. 
meet a farmer, bring friends together around a home-cooked meal, or get outside and just connect with nature. You are nature. There is no single one right action. Instead, ask yourself, do my actions contribute to interconnectedness and relationship, or do they strengthen isolation? Am I fostering life or extracting from it? Now, these questions can help guide your path toward a regenerative future. If this conversation was inspiring, I hope you will join the free watch party of this great new course, A Path to Healing People and Planet, hosted by Zach Bush, MD, and Farmer's Footprint. Sign up now at onecommune.com slash healing path and watch the entire course for free from November 17th through the 20th. That's onecommune.com slash healing path. The course features thought leaders on regenerative agriculture and how you can live a more regenerative lifestyle. And lastly, if you enjoy listening in this podcast format, well, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort that we put into this show's creation, and we really do our best to keep ads to a minimum. So beyond subscribing and review, if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best avenue is to subscribe to Commune Membership, our video course platform. You'll get access to more than 100 full-length courses featuring the leading teachers on personal growth, health, spirituality, yoga, meditation, and social impact. Go to onecommune.com trial to get membership free for 14 days. And I'm always here at jeffk at onecommune.com. Feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with criticism, suggestions of the constructive variety. Lastly, I would love to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Ruby Foster, Emma Fred, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.